0: And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. I hope um, those of you who celebrate Christmas have had a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Um, now we're moving on to the new year, which we all welcome. Yes, 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 yes. We really do welcome this. Um, today we're going to be talking about the fact that nobody's normal, the stigma of mental illness. Um, approximately 20% of all American adults, around 60 million people, live with a mental illness, but due to the lingering legacy of shame and secrecy around mental health, 60% of them receive no treatment. In today's special guest, Richard Rory Richard Grinker's book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness, anthropologist and professor Richard chronicles the progress and setbacks in the struggles against stigma from the 18th century through America's major wars and into today's high-tech economy. In this uplifting book, infused with poignant human interest stories, he shows us that In the 21st century, we are finally getting closer to ending the discrimination, fear, and marginalization that has long impeded the social and therapeutic supports that reduce suffering. Rory Richard Grinker is Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at the George Washington University. He is the author of several books, including Unstrange Minds. Remapping the World of Autism, and he comes to us from Washington, D.C. Um, good morning, Richard. Welcome.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: It is my pleasure. Uh, so I have um, gone through your book. It's, there's quite a lot of information in there, but uh, there's pretty much everything that one could think of in the development of mental, uh, mental health and illness. But as an anthropologist, what got you interested in this topic? Well,
1: uh, first of all, let me say, yeah, you're right. I'm an anthropologist, and I always want to emphasize that because I'm writing about issues that are of clinical significance. And so I need to make sure that uh, anybody listening knows I'm not a clinician. Um, uh, I am an anthropologist. And one of the things that has been a hallmark Of my field, anthropology, is the study of how psychology and emotional suffering varies across cultures. So, my interest is how is it that people uh, suffer and get help for their suffering depending on the historical period in which they live or the culture in which they live, and just the variation. Uh, is, is is quite enormous. I mean, you could take a specific condition like autism or depression, and it takes so many different forms and is managed in so many different ways depending on where and what time you're living in. And so that's why I am interested in it as an anthropologist. Uh, why I'm interested in mental health at all? Well, I have to tell you, I was supposed to be a, a shrink. My great-grandfather was a psychiatrist. My grandfather was a psychiatrist. My father was a psychiatrist. And I'm married oh. to a psychiatrist. And it looked like all, the, all the, 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 the arrows were pointing in this direction.
0: So why did you go a different, different way? Well, my grandfather
1: was really my, my, my idol, my hero. Um, I grew up across the street from him. Uh, it's not that common that people get to live to grow up, you know, across the street from uh, a a loved uh, relative, you know, like a grandparent. And he was a real giant in the history of psychiatry. Um, He was a pioneer. He was the first person to describe borderline personality syndrome. He was the uh, first person to really um, challenge the concept of uh, normality as a kind of you know, homogenizing uh, oh. ne- negative force. He, was, he, he published many, many books. He founded the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Chicago. He was the founding editor of the Archives of General Psychiatry. He was this towering figure, and I just couldn't compete. I mean, in my <laughs> mind, I was thinking, okay, I'd love to do something that grandpa loves, like mental health, but I can't compete with him. And I think that kind of pushed me away from going into science and medicine. And then when I got to college and discovered anthropology, it was like this eureka moment. Wow, I can do something else like anthropology, but still study mental health. And that was really important to me because I grew up in a family in which we were taught that everybody had mental health issues. You know, it wasn't like just the the, – people who were in asylums or, you know, the people who were bad people, everybody had some degree of mental illness. I mean, in some ways it was, I mean, it was, of course, mental illness is more serious than the common cold, but, but it was just sort of on the, the kind of continuum of things that all human beings dealt with. So I I really had to learn about stigma more than, you know, just sort of internalize it the way a lot of people do.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. Um, Stephen Hyman, who was the former director of NIMH, um, which is the National Institute of Mental Health, has called stigma an international public health crisis. Why do you think he said that? I mean, you quote him. So why do you think he said that?
1: I I think he's right. Uh, uh, Public health uh, has a big challenge with uh, stigma because particularly globally, there is not only uh, the stigma that one can experience in one's community, there's also the stigma in the healthcare community. There are study, there's study after study of people in countries all over the world where people say, oh, I don't want to deliver care to someone with a mental illness. They're frightened of them. They believe that mental illnesses are something to be afraid of. And so it is a public health crisis. It is an economic crisis. More labor days are lost to mental illness. The lives that are lost due to suicide, the uh, cascading effects of mental health on our biological health, is really important to note. Somebody who is depressed and not getting out of bed is probably going to be more subject to other kinds of medical illnesses because they're not necessarily engaged in healthy um, activities. They're not. Maybe they're not eating well. Maybe they're not exercising. Maybe they don't get care because they're so depressed that they don't just feel like they deserve to get care. And so um, there are conditions that really have so many cascading effects and one need only mention eating disorders which is the most fatal of all mental illnesses. I mean that's if somebody's not getting care um, for a serious mental illness, uh, they're at serious risk and we need to do whatever we can to reduce those barriers to care and what Stephen Hyman is saying is stigma is the major barrier to care.
0: Hmm. Um. Right, and you say neither medical nor scientific advances have lessened that stigma. So, and you, you started, you were talking about cultural history, and um, you say that our judgments about mental illness come from our definitions of what, at different times and places, people consider the ideal society and the ideal person. Um, and that that is so true. So where... Um, so let's go into this. The persistence of stigma also inhibits people from seeking help, even for the most seriously mentally, mentally ill today. <clears throat> the time from the onset of symptoms to psychiatric care is startling. In the United States, the average, average time from first psychosis to first treatment is 74 weeks. So why have we not been able to let go of the stigma?
1: Well, I think embedded in your, your question, Randy, you know, is, is essentially my argument, which is that um, stigma comes from the kind of society we live in and the kind of society that we have lived in for uh, the past several hundred years is one in which the idealized person doesn't depend on others. The idealized person is autonomous and controls their life and they uh, live independently. They're living out the you know, American dream of individualism. But that's a rare phenomenon. In most societies in the world, people don't think that the ideal person has to be totally independent. I mean, I have a child with autism. And like every parent of a child with autism, I'm always asked the same question. Will your child be able to live independently? But when I've gone to do research in Africa, such as I, ri- I write about this in Nobody's Normal, um, I did research in several parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, when somebody has autism there or somebody is seriously ill, nobody says, well, will they be able to live independently? Because the ideal person is not somebody who is this autonomous, bounded individual. It's somebody who's embedded in social relationships and friendships and uh, systems of support. I'm not saying that everything's ideal in the places that I've worked in Sub-Saharan Africa, but at least they don't stigmatize people who depend on others because to be dependent is to be human.
0: That's so very true. And um, and I do want to talk about autism a little bit later um, as we progress through time, through history, um, because it is so prevalent, and we have so many questions around it. But the next thing I really want to talk about is, which I found really interesting, is when you talk about when confinement, before confinement, doctors have never seen so many deviant individuals in a single space. and. So this confinement created the conditions in which doctors could observe people, and that generated the concept of mental illness, um, separating the disease, the the body from disease of the mind, and in this world. In which mental illness would soon emerge as a distinct object of study, mostly well-meaning doctors believed that confi- confinement represented real progress. Um, so these were society's undesirables. So talk exactly. about that. Talk about um, sure h- how confinement began and um, and how that was seen. Um, confinement was part of capitalism.
1: You know, if you weren't contributing to your family, uh, if you weren't uh, working, uh, if you were, you know, if experiencing whatever kind of uh, of life that prevented you from becoming the idealized, you know, worker, capitalist <laughs> worker in the industrial revolution, um, you were confined. And most people who were confined were brought to asylums by their families. But the interesting thing is that the first asylums were not for people with mental illnesses. They were just for people who didn't work. So it could have been somebody who was um, uh, physically handicapped, or it could be somebody who was a criminal. And they were all lumped together. And in fact, the first prisons are invented in England and France only because of this desire to separate the mentally ill from the criminals. So you first have asylums. Then people come along and they say, wait a minute, looks like there are these people who, have, who are not criminals but who are sick, and maybe they need a different kind of help, and let's remove the criminals and separate them out. And that's where we get the definitions of mental illness. Before that time, obviously there were people with mental illnesses who lived in their villages, but they might have been considered to be, you know, Crazy John or, you know, Mute Jane or something like that, but they weren't yet objects, as you put it, of a kind of scientific inquiry. And it's only when they were able to gather all these people in asylums and prisons that scientists come in and start to classify and separate them out and say, well, maybe we can we can think about dividing people into different types. It's a really, really interesting story because it tells us that the uh, development of uh, psychiatry did not come about because of any you know, major scientific advances, but because of the kind of social imperative to figure out what to do about people who didn't fit in with the Industrial Revolution.
0: Mm, that's so fascinating. And when we think of the word asylum, we think of these horrid places. But you say in yeah. your book that, that um, there were asylums for wealthy people that were not like that, right?
1: Oh, sure. Um, sanitariums and um, other other places where family members could um, live out their lives. Um, but, you know, that was for the wealthy. Um, most asylums were fairly, you know, deplorable places. But even wealthy people were subject to, in the past to the kinds of therapies that, you know, you and I today look back and say, how could they have done that? For example, King George III, right? You know, the mad King, King (laughs) George III. Um, He was, he had, he was whipped and beaten. He had uh, acid poured on his skin to blister it all in an attempt to cure him of his psychosis. And the, because this was the king of England, right? So even oh the the wealthy, you know, were subject to um, conditions that you know we today, you know, obviously you know find deplorable. But I think the what's interesting is if we start to see our um, ideas about mental illness coming from society, then it should be pretty empowering because we can say, okay, well then if society is responsible for stigma and abuses. Of, of, of human rights, well, then society can change it, right? It's not in our genes. Um, we can change it. And so just as the ideal person in the late 17, 17th century in England and France uh, was the you know, autonomous independent worker, what do we have as the ideal person today in, in, in this year, in the 21st century, well, the ideal person is perhaps still someone who is productive, but we have new ways of thinking about what that productivity can mean. So somebody you know who is a, a computer nerd, uh, somebody who uh, you know used to be called a nerd or a geek or whatever, is today, you know, for many of us, a hero. The person who's socially awkward and works better remotely than in person and has narrow interests isn't somebody who's, you know, uh, an outcast or a pariah. They mm-hmm. may be Bill Gates. Right. You know, and so this is how we, you know, it's like, it's really, it's kind of, you remember that movie, The Revenge of the Nerds, the, yeah. the high technology Community we live in is is maybe the real revenge of the nerds, right? People who used to be demeaned, stigmatized, bullied, are actually among our heroes now, and that's how society changes the way in which we treat people.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I heard the word nerd. I was in high school in the '70s, and somebody called me a nerd just because they they learned a new word, and I thought I didn't couldn't imagine what that meant, you know. So, like, no, I'm not. But but now people like my daughter, who is a math geek. I mean, she's just, um, that's that's her field, statistics and math. She calls herself a nerd, you know. Um, There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it. She's proud of being a nerd because that really defines her and everyone that she works with. Um, You talked about, and I I found this interesting. um, I, I found a lot interesting, but you talked about sexual fluidity in the past. Um, and how, yeah, I want you to explain that because I okay. don't really know how yeah. to explain so we, that.
1: Well, you know, Randy, it's really hard to explain. It's really hard to explain. So we, we think today that the kind of, um, sexual fluidity that we're, um, supporting more and more, uh, where people can kind of, you know, move along a continuum, uh, is new. Um well it's 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 not necessarily what was really new was this idea that we were fixed into male and female um, distinct sexes, and so this is one of the counterintuitive uh, claims in the book. So in the first part of nobody's normal, I say to the reader, you might find this really hard to believe, but until the end of the seventeen hundreds. There were no females. There were only males. There was just Mm -hmm. one sex, male. And in fact, that is true. It is only in the beginning of the early, the very early 1800s, late 1700s, that doctors and scientists start to believe that there are two distinct sexes, male and female. Previously, they had thought that men and women were just different expressions of the same underlying sex male women were kind of just imperfect males. they were males to be subordinated, to be controlled, to be confined. they were people they were males who were on that spectrum so that they could reproduce and and become, you know, uh, bearers of, of uh, and raisers of children. And at that time, bef- just before the end of the 1700s, there are not even any words in any European um, society for the female genitalia. I mean, they're the same words. So the uterus is a scrotum, and the ovaries uh, were called testicles. And it's really, really fascinating to see this. So why is this important? It's important because the things that we take for granted are actually products of culture. The way that male and female got separated in the late 1700s had nothing to do with any new scientific data. Nobody had any fancy microscopes or genetic analysis or anything that they hadn't had before. They had the same knowledge they just, for capitalism's sake, needed to fix sex roles. So that you had the, the razors and the, of, and, of children, and you had the um, the men who, who worked. And so um, when we look at today's movement toward understanding and appreciating and supporting um, sexual fluidity, we need to understand that it has been many, many centuries that people believed that we existed on a continuum and on a spectrum along which we could move. And it was in that one sex world that men did become women, and women did become men, because you could move along that spectrum.
0: There are many, many such stories, many,
1: many stories of people who would say, "Uh, was that a man or a woman? Well, that was a man, but then they became a woman. Or they were a woman and then they became a man. So let's say right. there was a let's say you were in let's say there was a trial, right? Because there were certain things men could do, certain things women couldn't do, right? right? And let's say a woman tried to go into a establishment that was just for men, okay, like a tavern or a bar or something. It was just for men in the you know mid 1700s, and somebody said, okay, you you've you've broken the law. You can't come in here because you're a a woman. The woman could say, no, I'm I'm a man. And how would they prove it in court? They wouldn't look at the genitals because that doesn't, that didn't make any difference. What they would do is look at how society considered that person. If the community that that person lived in considered that person to be a man, that was okay. But it didn't have to do with genitals and sex because that was, there was only one of those. There were different gender identities but only one underlying sex. So you wouldn't, you'd you'd ask the community, do you think this person is a man or a woman? And it's really interesting, but it's very counterintuitive, you know? And this is the kind of thing that anthropology thrives on, counterintuitive ideas. How could that possibly be? But when we unmask these counterintuitive claims and see the logic, then we understand that so much of what we're doing in the world, we have the power to change. We have the power to have culture, the capacity to define things in the way that we want to define them. And people are defining gender identity now differently, not because of any new scientific you know, discovery, but because our culture is changing. And we're opening up our idea to um, multiple ways of being.
0: That's so true. That's just, thank goodness that's happening um you know well, and I, should, I
1: should say uh uh-huh. I should add i should add i shouldn't say that science isn't important because people are having um gender affirming surgeries right if you want right. to transition from male to female, there are surgeries um right. and those surgeries were advanced by science um but namely during the world wars when mm. people had um, damage to their genitalia from explosions and guns and other um, ammunition, uh, the military developed the techniques to rebuild um, a a person's genitalia. And and that's made, and so the the surgeries that people are having today do come from scientific advances um, made during the world wars.
0: Hmm. You know, I was going to say, um, um, I inherited a, a marble statue. It's just something that sits on the table. And it's three women. They look like Romans. Um, and um, they sort of all have their arms around each other. And you can see the female physique in all three of them. When you turn the thing around, the one in the middle, the tallest one, has the back of a man. <laughs> That's really it's, cool. Where did you get really that? Cool. I inherited it. So, <laughs> so uh, I couldn't figure it out. My son pointed it out. He's like, mom, look at the back. So I started looking it up and that's where I first heard about um, sexual fluidity. And I'm like, okay, so whoever did this either was representing the sexual fluidity of that era or it came from that that era i really don't know but it's really really fascinating to me um so it is really yeah.
1: interesting yeah Go
0: ahead. um um you know and so so as it evolved uh, you said the first psych, psychiatrist quickly embraced the topic of what was the woman's most dangerous and least understood quality which was their unique sex and sexuality and began to consider women insane who resisted they're now biologically defined roles, such as women who read too much, wanted jobs, or disobeyed their husbands. So, um, so this when this began to change, uh, women who became women were really um, looked down on. Right. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the f- more sort of fascinating and disturbing uh, stories that I tell in Nobody's Normal is about the invention of lobotomies where you know parts of the brain were uh, damaged and severed. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the goal of lobotomy was largely to enforce gender norms, that you, you, the lobotomy was, was preferentially used for women who didn't fit in to those gender roles. They were... Uh, either too sexually active, or they weren't sexually sexual enough, perhaps for their husbands. They didn't conform to the ideas of the person who was staying at home and being a, a housewife and raising children. And parents would bring these, um, you know, adolescents and young adults, and sometimes children, and For um, lobotomies, and so we tend to think of lobotomies as just, you know, this brutal, horrible, um, damaging of the brain as a as a attempt to treat mental illnesses. But it was also an attempt to enforce gender norms. And the majority of people who received lobotomies uh, during the time when it was popular, 1940s, 50s, um, was uh, were, were women, including John F. Kennedy's sister. Sister Rosemary, she was her brain was irreparably damaged. But there's another place, you know, in which um, gender roles become sort of a key to understanding uh, how how psychiatry, just like all areas of knowledge, um, is so subject to the time and culture in which we live. I have a lot of concerns about the kind of emphasis on the brain these days because I don't think people are understanding as much as they should about society and culture. And they sort of thinking mm-hmm. that mental illness is really just about the brain and fixing the brain. Um, whereas we know from all areas of health, whether it's oncology or, you know, any other or neurology or any form, any area of medicine that um, how we experience ourselves and the kinds of treatments that we get um, are affected by the place in which we live, you know, all the the social supports, the (laughs) social supports we have, the kinds of, of care that we get, the way that we're treated by our friends. I mean, I remember when my wife had breast cancer, um, what there was only, you know, so much you can see in a microscope, Right a tumor, you can see a tumor in a microscope, you can treat the, the condition. But her experience was shaped by how things changed around her. Friends who were freaked out, didn't know how to, in, how to deal with her cancer, and so they became more distant. Acquaintances who became really intimate friends because they came forward. Family members who had various responses. Um, the way in which people looked at her when she lost her hair. Um, those are not things you see in a microscope. You know, those are the experiences you have as a part of your society.
0: Wow, that's really, uh, that's really amazing. And you are right. You are so right. You know, as you were saying that, it reminded me years ago, I had, I've been doing this show for over 10 years, but years ago I had a guest um, and she had written a book called The Children of Now. And in this book, she talked about how autism and um, ADHD and things like that really were not disorders. It's just the way that we treat these children in, in, in a classroom, the expectations that we have of these children to be a certain way. Um, And, and I just, you know, so that sort of came up when you were mentioning that, but it is, and she talks about how these children are really the children of the future. So,
1: yeah, that's yeah. I think that's a great point. It's it's so often you know when we see somebody who's struggling in some way, we we sort of jump to the conclusion that there's something wrong with them, and not think that perhaps there's just a a, a, a fit that needs to be worked on between them and the environment in which they are. Right. So the kid who's not performing well in school, we say now, oh, they have ADHD or they have autism. We jump to that more than to say, hmm, I wonder if the educational settings that we have are, you know, enforcing a certain kind of behavior and making it hard for certain types of people with certain types of, you know, we all have challenges and, and, and weaknesses um, and, and strengths. Well, that combination varies across humans, so maybe that setting is tough. When we see somebody who's homeless, we might jump to the conclusion that there's something wrong with them. Maybe they, um, you know, are, are psychotic and have schizophrenia. We're much more likely to jump to that conclusion than to start thinking about like the history of discrimination and economic inequality in the United States and how that might have affected that experience. I think we need to pay more attention to the relationship between the individual and the and the context in which they're living in.
0: That is so true. I, it's really, really, I really, really um, like that. It gives us a lot to think about. And you mentioned schizophrenia. This is something that I'm noticing in uh, the last couple years. The stigma of schizophrenia is leaving. Before it was like that crazy woman Bag lady mm-hmm. on the street mumbling to herself. That's what we thought. of as schizophrenia. Yeah. But there are many people who are functioning in society with this disorder. Is that not true?
1: Yes, it is absolutely true. Um, I, you know, I have to say the the, the advances that people have made in medicines um, to treat psychotic disorders have been pretty minimal. You know, pretty incremental. But there is just a lot more um, openness now to understanding that even if you have this diagnosis or label, it doesn't mean that you are going to be the same person for the rest of your life. Like once labeled, always labeled, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that people are finding ways now to, to, to work and to, Mary. Um, And I think it's really important that we we look at some of the really good memoirs that are out there by people who have schizophrenia and who have struggled mightily but have managed to lead lives that are really meaningful to them. I'm thinking of Ellen Sachs's book, The Center Cannot Hold. Um, She became a dean at USC Law School and she has schizophrenia. but she's a dean in a law school, living a meaningful life. It's not a perfect life for her, I'm sure. Um, she she's, has suffered so much, but with the right social supports and the right therapeutic relationships, she's had some very caring and empathic doctors and friends. Um, she's, she's been able to, um, to really achieve a lot of what she's wanted to. And one thing that I, I think is notable, you know, is that in the United States, you know, you get a diagnosis of schizophrenia and it's like, you're, that's you, it's like it defines your whole being. You're a schizophrenic, right? We have that word. Mm-hmm. The, the, well, so where I've, I've worked in sub-Saharan Africa, if you don't have symptoms of something at a particular time, you don't have that – you're not labeled as sick. Mm-hmm. So I write about a man named Tomzo who uh, lives in Namibia. Uh, he's a hunter-gatherer, lives in the remote area of the Kalahari Desert, and he's had delusions, hum and hallucinations. And he walks 12 miles each way, one day per month to get his antipsychotic medicine from a European non-governmental organization, which writes down in his chart, Schizophrenia, chlorpromazine, such and such a dose, schizophrenia. The medicine's working pretty well so far. So, when you ask his family and the villagers if he's sick, they say no, he's not sick. But in the village, he's not sick. In the NGO, he has schizophrenia. It's a sort of like a little laboratory of two very different cultures, side by side, 12 miles apart, um, you know, in which you can see these two very different um, uh, definitions of how to think about somebody. Now, I'm not saying if he has, if the medicines fail and he starts to have delusions and hallucinations, he could be discriminated against and stigmatized and treated badly, right? But for the moment, he seems to be symptom free. And he's managing um, to um, make his a living, hunting, gathering. He has some goats. Um, and people help him in the community. Um, and he doesn't have those symptoms. And so it's interesting how you can be sick in one place and not sick in another, just 12 it, miles apart.
0: That is really interesting. That's fascinating. Um, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, and I know you talk about this in your book, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Manual. And over the years, there's been, um, I guess, I think they're on the fifth one now. I don't know if they're working on the sixth. But it's been very, a very slow progress of going from one to the other to the other. And I know that the American Psychiatric Association is extremely um, slow to accept a newly defined disorder, such as, I mean, the last one was PTSD. That really took them a long time to define. Um, what, what do you have to say about the evolution of the DSM?
1: Well, <laughs> that is a huge question, the evolution of the DSM. I mean, what a cultural document, right? Because mm-hmm. you can look at it at different points in time and see mm-hmm. how uh, it reflects the way that American society was thinking about mental illnesses, um, mm-hmm. and I and I cover that that history in the book, and hopefully, um, uh, in a way that is uh, accessible um, to the general reader. Um, but um, you know, these frameworks that are in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders are frameworks that serve two functions. For Well, at least two functions, but let me just give you two. The first one is so that people who are doing research on a particular set of symptoms or a particular condition uh, in many places are all sure that they're doing research on the same condition. So that's why they have those criteria. You know, you have to have so many on a checklist to make sure that if I'm in, you know, San Diego and you're in Portland, Maine, that we're actually studying the same condition because we're at least using a standardized set of criteria. But the second reason that you have these frameworks is to make sense of groups of symptoms that help drive a treatment, that help drive some kind of intervention. No diagnosis is of any use unless it helps someone. And so the idea that these are real conditions like autism or depression or schizophrenia is, is really a big leap of faith. They are real in the sense that we are treating them as real because they help us. But we don't know in 100 years if we'll have these same terms or not. So take post-traumatic stress disorder, which you brought up. Um, why did that become a new diagnosis? Don't you think that people had enduring stress from war and trauma in the civil war or in the revolutionary war? Of course, but there was not uh, a, um, a presentation of symptoms after those uh, trauma that were seen to constitute a particular illness. People Thought that trauma was something that you experienced at the time, and you couldn't have enduring trauma after that. And it was only with um, the rise of feminism in um, the post-Vietnam War years that you know people really said, you know, there are all kinds of traumas that we have, including domestic abuse, um, rape, um, other kinds of sexual violence, and there has to be some kind of term for that. And it helped then people make sense of the fact that they were having emotional hardships many, many months or many, many years after um, one or more traumatic episodes. But that doesn't mean that PTSD was just a new condition. It's just that it hadn't found the right society and culture. Now, on the converse, Asperger's is gone, right? Right. Asperger's has been eliminated in the DSM-5. But it's not because there was this real disease and now there isn't. It's that Asperger's was found initially to be a useful category because it defined people with autism at a time when autism was so stigmatized and so scary. And today, because autism is not so scary, that we understand that it's a huge range from people with intensive, really involved care to people like, you know, the nerds we talked about earlier, we don't need Asperger's anymore. And so it's gone. It's not that there was a real disease and now they cured it and it's gone or that scientists were wrong. It served a social function. And that's what a lot of these DSN categories do is they serve um, a social function in addition to, you know, providing a framework for treatment and services.
0: Right. Yeah, so now they they just say on the spectrum. So, you know, you can be, as you say, you know, mildly autistic or severely autistic and anywhere in between. Um, Yeah, the thing about the DSM is that it really boxes licensed mental health professionals in because they're not allowed to diagnose something that's not in there. And there are, you know, so for instance, I work with um, people who, uh, are suffering from narcissistic abuse syndrome or narcissistic mm-hmm. victim syndrome which is very very real it's very diagnosable but it's not there so it's not recognized yeah. so i i just have to throw that in i don't want to get into the personality well sure i mean this is mm-hmm.
1: well, you know this is this is why we have to we we when people experience things that we don't have terms for we have to advocate to to make sense of them in some way So, like, if you take borderline personality syndrome, which my grandfather was the first to describe in 1968, um, at that time, there were only two real – really two disorders. There were psychoses and neuroses. Hmm. And people with psychoses weren't put into psychiatric therapy or psychoanalysis because it was thought they couldn't have the insight, the empathy, the – therapeutic relationship necessary for psychoanalysis, which was the dominant therapy at the time. But they weren't. Um, but so, so those were people with psychosis. And then there were people with neur- neuroses who were, you know, all the people who, who went to the shrinks, um, whether it was, you know, people who were suffering pretty much but, or the worried well. And then there was this group of people that my grandfather and other doctors looked at who had personality disorders, and they weren't psychotic, and they, but they were having a tough time in therapy. They had a tough time with the relationship with the therapist. It took a long time to, to treat. Uh, they didn't have the, uh, uh, the insight that uh, the psychoanalysts felt was necessary for a successful analysis. And so they said, okay, uh, let's call them borderline, because they're not psychotic for sure. Right. No, but they're not just they're not just neurotic because if they were neurotic, we'd be able to treat them in psychoanalysis pretty easily.
0: Right, and right. they call it borderline,
1: and you know, and then there there becomes this this new term, but it does take a long, long time. That's why you see before PTSD,
0: Vietnam
1: syndrome, and and all these other Vietnam disease and other sorts of of of, uh, of things like terms like that before they decided to uh make it right but that was a big struggle trying to get ptsd boy that was a huge huge struggle to get that in the dsm
0: mm, and bet. today
1: when we think about i mean doesn't that seem strange to you that it would be so hard to get that in just well you know in no, your gut you know,
0: yeah i mean it does you know but after doing the work that i do i've done for so many years <laughs> You know, I understand that the mental health system, a lot of it is antiquated. And, um, yeah. you know, so uh, they're just resting on their laurels in certain areas. And, but I know they're very slow to make these changes. But they do want to make changes.
1: Um, and and there is a purely financial interest, you know, because if you, for every new edition of the DSM that comes out, all the clinicians have to buy the new one. Right. Right. So you do want to change it. Uh, so you can make some money.
0: Right. Exactly. That's true. That's true. It's Abby a huge money
1: maker. I mean on <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm not trying to trash psychiatry and say that they're just yeah. making new diagnoses for money, but the reality is that that the DSM is uh is one of the major sources of income for the American Psychiatric Association.
0: <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah, they sell a lot of them. Um so let's talk about you say that electro convulsive therapy is a safe and highly effective therapy for treatment of resistant depression. So, um, but when we think about it, we think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, that was just the most most scary, (laughs) terrifying scene. Why do we have this stigma around this? Well, the, the stigma
1: around ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, um, is, is, is complicated. You know, I have a whole chapter on it in Nobody's Normal. And I think some of it comes from its association early on with lobotomy, which was thought of as a kind of shock. And they often used a kind of insulin shock or electric shock with it. But I think that there's just, you know, there's something about the brain that is different. You know, it's not like, you know, if you think about the comparison, you have a, um, a defibrillator. Of somebody who's having a serious cardiac event, and they get right. this jolt of electricity that saves their life. Right. Right? So that's the hero of the medical drama on TV, right? They just clear, and then they zap the person, save their life. Um, but when we think about a small amount of electricity, certainly much smaller than a defibrillator, uh, in electric convulsive therapy, we kind of recoil and think that that's that's horrible. And yet, it has saved many lives, and I've seen it personally save lives, because there are some people who are resistant to treatment, that the medicines won't work, and they become so seriously depressed that they're wasting away. They are catatonic. They can't even blink. They're malnourished. And in those cases... Um, electroconvulsive therapy has produced what Dick Cabot considered to be a wondrous, uh, what uh, others have called miracles. Mm. Uh, Kitty Dukakis um, uh, is uh, and Carrie Fisher um, have both you know written about how it saved their lives. Um, but we really do also face this um, kind of sort of a backlash that it has side effects. Well, when you have chemotherapy to save your life, it has lots of side effects, but we accept those side effects. Um, it's much harder to accept some, for some people some of the side effects of electroconvulsive therapy which involve memory loss. And that can be very painful for people. But if I had a family member who, um, whose life was at risk, you know, I would, I would advocate for them to have their life saved uh, even at the risk of side effects. And so the stigma of electroconvulsive therapy is linked up with the way in which we think about the brain as the seed of the soul, seat of the personality, the seat of the self. And we associate it with these horrific images like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which even when One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was made, was fictional. It didn't look like that. Because I saw electric convulsive therapy uh, as an adolescent at the same time that movie came out. this It did not look uh, at all <laughs> like what's in that movie. And <laughs> Anderson, Cooper's, Anderson Cooper's done a whole 60 Minutes thing on it. You can go and look um, online and, and see videos of people getting ECT. And I think that can be very helpful to, to see that it's not this – you know, this sort of horrible, brutal um, procedure.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and I've seen it in other movies and everything where they, t- they tie the person down, they strap them down, right. and they put this thing in and yeah. boom, you know, the whole body jerks. And yeah. It just looks well, awful. I think, but it- I think also, also part of the
1: stigma of it has to do with the fact that, you know, in a, this is an era of precision medicine and it still feels like a pretty blunt instrument, right? Put an electrode mm-hmm. on the head, There's a little um, electricity, like what's in a, a, you know, they would get if you touched like an electric socket or something. And, um, but the person is anesthetized and they're under and they don't feel a thing. And, but, um, you know, it's this sort of idea of it being this blunt instrument.
0: Um,
1: That's why I think it's really useful to actually see it. Yeah. I think you're right, and there I is a portion there is a portion of people, and given the suicide rate and the rate of depression, I mean there are there's a portion of people who who who, who don't get better with the other forms of treatment, and in those cases,
0: right, yeah, and it's, it can it's be worth trying. Top. Yeah, there was um, one more thing I wanted to cover. Um, you talked about something that I have never heard of, and that is genital theft. What? I mean, I know you ta- you have an extensive chapter on this, but what is genital theft?
1: Well, I have a chapter uh, called "When the Body Speaks," and and that chapter um, in Nobody's Normal is is about how um, express our emotional distress and our emotional suffering in different ways, depending on the society we live in, depending on the time. We're living in, and so I, I use that sort of as a uh, a really kind of startling example, right? Mm-hmm. Because okay. um, there are societies throughout the world in Southeast Asia, in Africa, and other places in the world, in which um, and immigrants from those places in the United States and England and elsewhere who experience emotional distress as something that's going wrong with their genitalia, either that it is being stolen or being sucked up into the body. Um, in Southeast Asia, um, in um, Southern China, it's often called Koro, K-O-R-O, which comes from the Malay word for head of a turtle. so a turtle recedes into the shell, just like the genitals the, are, are, are said to be sucked up into the body. And... In Sub-Saharan Africa, there are a lot of people who have reported general theft. And what they are doing is they are articulating their mental, emotional suffering through that symptom. And I use this as a way to start a discussion about how we have lots and lots of ways of experiencing our emotions through a physical um, sense. And so many, many people who go to primary care physicians for a headache, fatigue, uh, 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 some sort of muscle paralysis, um, a cough, all kinds of rash, skin rashes, diarrhea, um, often believe that the, there's no psychiatric component to it. When in fact, much of our emotional life is articulated through the body. You'd think of something just like blushing, right? Just thinking about an embarrassing moment, even if it hasn't happened, like the possibility of an embarrassing moment leads blood to rush into our um, cheeks and our capillaries and our our heart rate picks up, right? The problem with this in the United States and in some parts of Europe too is that if you suggest to somebody that there is a psychiatric component to their physical suffering, they may respond by saying, you're saying I'm making it up? You're saying it's all in my head? No, this is a real disease. And that is the legacy of stigma, that we divide our experiences into either the body or the mind. You're sick in your body or you're sick in your mind. In the 1950s and '60s, my grandfather started a huge institute in Chicago precisely to study how psychiatric psychological experience affected the outcomes of things like cancer, liver disease and dementia, and um, other sorts of, and, and uh, other sorts of physical condition because he didn't think that you should separate the body and the mind. But there are many people out there who experience a whole lot of, uh, of, of physical problems and don't want to think about there being a psychiatric component to it because it's, they, that's the legacy of stigma. They think, oh, well, you're saying that I'm making it up, but you know, everything is related to the brain, everything there's nothing that's not neurological right in human experience right
0: that's true that's true yeah i mean i you know i'm one of those people who have had you know many different um undiagnosable things throughout the years and when doctors can't handle it they always you know give me that it's in your mind and i and listen I know there's a component of that, but sometimes there is a physical thing that they just don't know how to find. And, oh, um, absolutely, and, absolutely. And, if I, but, and they just kind of throw that out there. That's the trash can diagnosis. And yeah. it makes me so, so upset because, listen, I'm really in touch with my mind, my body, and the connection of it. I know when something's coming from my, my mind. I know when something's um, haunting me from my past and manifesting itself in my body. But there are certain things, that are not, <laughs> when they throw that at me, yeah. i like, i look at them with daggers coming out of my eyes because it's just frustrating. Uh, yeah. But... I mean,
1: I think for unexplained um, conditions where there isn't a clear cut um, medical finding, it's just a lot harder to approach the psychiatric component. So mm-hmm. if somebody says to somebody who has heart disease that they should uh, exercise, a little more, right? They don't take that as being that you know that some it'll make them feel better if they or maybe it's somebody who has cancer and is so anxious about uh, their future that someone recommends they go into psychotherapy. They don't question it and say, Oh, you're saying my cancer's made up? Of course not, right? We are just we, they just know that exercise can help with heart disease, that um, psychotherapy can help with the. Tremendous anxiety associated with having a very serious life threatening disease like a cancer. But when it's an unexplained condition, like um, and and, and one that is maybe even a contested condition, like chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic Lyme disease, then it becomes a lot harder. And yet, people who suffer from all of the symptoms associated with those unexplained, as yet unexplained conditions um, are are suffering psychologically, too, from those symptoms, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, so how do you say it? Well, would psychotherapy help you to cope with the fact that you have this, you know, intractable disease? Um, That doesn't sound really provocative, but it could be heard that way.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had a chronic cough, And I went to a doctor, and he saw me two times, did a couple of tests, and then he handed me this sheet. And he's like, "I have a diagnosis for you." I'm like, "Oh, great!" You know? And he hands me this sheet. The sheet, and it's um, it's a psychodynamic cough or something like that. Which I looked at it, and I'm like, psychogenic,
1: psychogenic,
0: psychogenic, right? Psychogenic cough. And I'm and I'm like, all right, um, uh, this is not it. Well, anyway, long story short, I, I found a doctor um, in New York who specialized in this, and it turned out that I had neuropathy of the mm-hmm. um, vagus nerve that was, um, that was affecting. Yeah, sure, the that fright. was making you cough. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. right. So um, there was a physiological you know, reason for it, but he just wasn't skilled enough to go that far. So, um, yeah, so, but I've had both, you know, and and like I said, I mean, the first time I went to a doctor years ago, I was about 19 years old and I started with chronic fatigue and I went to a doctor and what, and chronic fatigue was seen as depression back then. We're talking about Mm -hmm. the, the mid seventies. Um, so a doctor handed me Valium. Well, if you take Valium, (laughs) it's going to take, it's going to make you Low and lethargic.
1: Yes, yeah. and yeah. it doesn't.
0: <laughs> and I keep thinking back to how things have changed. You know, where he thought that yeah. that was going to help me with chronic fatigue, but yes, things have evolved over the years. And do you have? Uh, do it, we
1: have a couple more minutes
0: because we do. Yeah,
1: uh, there's 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 one really interesting sort of cutting edge line of research that I do want to mention in relationship okay. to our sure. what we're talking about here in body mm-hmm. and mind. So you know how we're, we're always taught in school. That you can't pass on to your progeny the characteristics that you acquire in life. So if I lose a leg in my life and then I have and I and then I have a child, my child will not be born with one leg, right? right. I can't pass that on to my progeny. This thing that happened to me in my life. Um, we learned that when we studied Darwin, and the opposite of that was Lamarck, you know, who said yes, you could pass on acquired characteristics. Well, what people are now discovering in the field of epigenetics is that when people experience um, a lot of trauma uh, in their lives and, and also people who meet the criteria for PTSD, it can actually change your gene regulation. Um, it can change the way you know certain genes turn on and off. And that gene regulation actually can be transmitted across generations putting subsequent generations at greater risk for certain kinds of mental illnesses. And so if we um, look at, say, that there was a great Dutch famine in the early 20th century, and a lot of the children um, uh, from that Dutch famine um, had schizophrenia at much higher rates than the general population of those who did not experience the famine. And these things get passed on. So when we look at a case like that, you know, schizophrenia in the offspring of people who lived through the Dutch famine, is that a psychiatric condition or is that a biological condition? (laughs) Is it a brain disorder or is it genetic? It almost doesn't make sense to even ask the question of trying to distinguish them, right?
0: You're right. It's together. It all comes. Right. It is together. Yeah, I mean I've seen that in my own family. Um, absolutely. I've seen how things have come through that are not definable. So um I completely agree with you and it's this is also fascinating. Um so um your book is called Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Um uh Richard, uh is your book available everywhere books are sold?
1: Well, it is available, but it's, its official release date is January 26th.
0: Ah, okay. And
1: it will be released uh, – I mean, you can certainly order it, um, and uh, it's not an expensive book. Um, and, um, yes, it's about mental illness, but it's supposed to be uplifting, that we're making progress. And, yes. the, you know, the question is how can we stay the course – and, um, and it will also be uh, an audiobook, book, um, not read by me, but by an amazing narrator um, named Lyle Blakeler um, from Nevada. Uh, he's an amazing, uh, 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 narrated, you know, dozens of books. Uh, and it'll, it will be an audiobook. book. Uh, so the book's published by Norton, W.W. W. Norton, and the audio book will be uh, Penguin Random House.
0: Okay. And do you have a personal website?
1: I do. Uh, RoyRichardGrinker.com
0: Okay, all right, awesome.
1: And uh, my Twitter is just at Roy Grinker.
0: Okay, all right. Sounds good. Oh, this has been so fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, You know, I learned so much, and uh, I just, I love this topic. I mean, this is is the thing that fascinates me the most. Um, So, I did learn a lot from you and, um, and I intend to learn a lot more, but you know, you've really, we've, I tried to touch on, you know, some of the bigger aspects of the book so that we could get a sort of a comprehensive idea of what is in there. But of course we couldn't even begin to get into the details that you get into. So um, to my listeners, you know, this is something you want to pick up because if you love, if you're fascinated by mental illness, this book will really, 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 intrigue you so thank you Richard it's been an okay, absolute thank pleasure you. Have, okay, a have a very happy, happy new year, new year. yeah right. same to you take care okay bye-bye. you too bye-bye so we are out of time today but if you have any comments or questions you can email me at love at randyfine.com may joy and serenity always be yours goodbye we hope you enjoyed today's show Visit randifine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.